0: Our sermon today will be um, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 6, verses 31 through 44, as we study the feeding of the 5,000 by Jesus. The feeding of the 5,000 is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. It is the only miracle recorded in all four gospels, showing how vital it is for understanding Jesus and the gospel that he preached. But familiarity breeds contempt, as the saying goes. And our familiarity with this passage can easily lead us to remember all the details of the story, but to miss the real, bigger meaning behind it. We can remember and recount the number of loaves and fish, the baskets of leftovers, the unbelief of the disciples, the incredible miracle of Jesus, and the excited reaction of the crowd. But can we explain why Jesus performed this miracle? Can we explain why All of the gospel writers recorded this specific miracle for future generations of Christians, including us. My hope is that after tonight, all of us can answer that question with a decisive yes. Tonight we will study, as I said, Mark's account of this great miracle out of the four that are in our Bibles. Again, you can find that in chapter 6. Verses 31-44 in that Gospel. Please turn out for the reading of it. This is the inspired, infallible, inerrant Word of God. And He said to them, Come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. For many were coming and going, and they had no leisure even to eat. This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's right. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that here we can see your son in all his glory and power. Father, we pray that as we study these verses, that you would illuminate them for us, that we would be able to understand um, the the meaning behind this miracle. And that it would help us to not just gain and stock up knowledge, Lord, but that it would help us to love you and to love your son more and to worship you. We pray this in in his name. Amen. Today, uh, or tonight rather, our sermon will consist of three main points. Firstly, the true king. Secondly, the short sighted disciples. And thirdly, the meaningful miracle. It's firstly, the true king, the short sighted disciples, and the meaningful miracle. When looking at a passage like this in the course of a gospel, it's important to remember that the gospels are not just a bunch of separate events that were stitched together in random order by the writers of the gospels, but rather they're in a specific context. And the things that come before them and the things that come after them are there in that order for a reason. The Holy Spirit caused them to be in that order for a reason. So when we look at the passage immediately before this one we see something that might at the surface seem unrelated that is the death of John the Baptist as probably a lot of your Bibles will um, title it um, in the superscript. What we see here though is the main focus is not the death of John the Baptist though it's the result. But what we see is a wicked king that wicked king being king herod in verses 17 and 22 we see that herod was wicked because he was lustful and because even beyond that he was incestuous in verse 17 uh, we see that herod had Put John in prison because he had criticized Herod's taking of his brother's wife for himself. In verse 22, the the thing that prompts Herod to make the reckless promise that results in the death of John the Baptist is watching his stepdaughter dance in front of him in an alluring fashion. So you can see that this is a man who was fully enslaved by his by his base his fleshly desires we also see that herod was weak willed in verse 17 he puts john in prison not because he was offended by what john was saying but because his new wife was offended so he put john in prison an innocent man in prison not because he was personally convicted of it but because he was being pressured by somebody and he gave in. In verse 21, we see that Herod was prolificate in the middle of a society that was suffering under the yoke of Roman rule and oppression, where most of the people were very poor. We see in verse 21, him on his birthday, giving a huge banquet for his nobles, his military commanders, and the leading men of Galilee with food and dancing and all sorts of uh, typical royal court extravagance. This is not a man who cared about his people or the wise stewardship of their resources. In verse twenty-three, we see that Herod was arbitrary. Instead of realizing that the promise that he had made to this girl was was extremely foolish and it resulted in him doing a very evil act he did it anyway and went through with it in verses 26 and 27 you can see that that is because he was prideful he did not want to see the men around him who he wanted to think well of him to see him go back on a promise that he had made so mark here paints a very clear picture of the fact that herod the so-called king of the of israel or of parts of it was really no true king at all he was a wicked king in reaction to uh it seems to the death to the beheading of john the baptist Jesus, we see in verses 31 and 32, uh, calls his disciples to come away with him. It's important to remember that John the Baptist was Jesus' cousin. Uh, Presumably, they would have known each other relatively well, and we can easily imagine that Jesus was um, very deeply grieved by the death of John the Baptist, um, as he was by the death of Lazarus. Additionally, you see that he and his disciples were probably exhausted. They were being constantly surrounded by crowds. His disciples, as, we, as you can see in verses seven through 13, uh, had just been on this big tour through the region, um, teaching and healing and doing all these sorts of things and had just come back to Jesus. So they were almost certainly very tired and then they were hungry. We see uh, in those, in those uh, verses that uh, they were hungry because there were so many crowds, so many people coming and going, that they didn't even have time to eat. If you think you're busy, then look at this and might feel a little less busy after imagining that. Um, so there's all of these factors combined. Jesus is probably grieving, they're exhausted, they're hungry, and he calls his disciples to come with him to go into the wilderness to get rest and to get food. But as we see in this passage, they do not go alone. Instead, there is a huge crowd that follows along with them. If we read verses 33 and 34 again, we see. Uh, Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So their expectation, their hope that they were getting away into the wilderness, getting away from the crowds, getting to a place where they can rest, where they can finally eat, clearly has not come to pass. Of course, we know that Jesus uh, has foreknowledge of things, so it's, he surely foresaw this, but his disciples certainly um, did not. And you can imagine they might have been uh, rather disappointed to get out of the boat and see a gigantic crowd there waiting for them. But Jesus is not disappointed. Jesus is moved to have compassion, to have compassion on people. Why does he have compassion? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Now this is not just a nice turn of phrase, a nice uh, illustration um, from the the common culture of that time, but instead it was an intentional reference to a driving theme uh, in the Old Testament um, we'll go on a little bit of a whirlwind tour here in the, the Old Testament. So uh, I will say the passages before I read them and try to wait a little bit so you can see them as well. Um, firstly, we can see that in the Old Testament, this sheep without a shepherd analogy is used to condemn the false shepherds. False shepherds like Herod. Um, we can see that, for example, in 1 Kings twenty-two seventeen. 17. 1 Kings, 22, 17. Here the prophet Micaiah is speaking to Ahab, who I'm sure most of you know as one of the most wicked kings of the Old Testament. And when Ahab calls him to give him a, a prophecy about how he's going to triumph in battle, Micaiah instead, proclaims what the people of Israel are currently like suffering under his kingship. And he said, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as sheep that have no shepherd. And the Lord said, these have no master, but each return to his home in peace. So they were without a shepherd because they had only a wicked leader. On the same theme, we see Zechariah chapter 10, verses 2 and 3. Zechariah chapter 10, verses 2 and 3, where the prophet Zechariah speaks about the failings of the rulers of Judah and of Israel in the midst of a passage where he speaks about their future restoration Looking back at them, he says, for the household, God's utter nonsense and the diviner see lies, they tell false dreams and give empty consolation. Therefore the people wander like sheep. They are afflicted for lack of a shepherd. My anger is hot against the shepherds and I will punish their leaders For the Lord of hosts cares for his flock, the house of Judah. So we see the Lord uses in the Old Testament this metaphor to condemn the evil rulers of Israel. Another thing that this metaph- Jesus' use of this metaphor does is it identifies him with Joshua. You can see if you go to Numbers 27 uh, verses 15 through 18. Numbers 27 verses 15 through 18. Moses spoke to the Lord, saying, Let the Lord, the God of the spirits of all flesh, appoint a man over the congregation who shall go out before them and come in before them, who shall lead them out and bring them in, that the congregation of the Lord may not be a sheep that have no shepherd. So the Lord said to Moses, Take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit, and lay your hand on him. Joshua and Jesus actually really have the same name in Hebrew, so that this um, reference to this metaphor connects Jesus with Joshua in yet another way, we see that in this sense as Joshua led the people of Israel, was before them, came in before them, led them out, led them in, in the same way Jesus would be the true leader who would do the same thing. And then finally we see that this reference to this metaphor is a beautiful fulfillment of what we find in Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel chapter 34. I'll read a longer section of this because it's just, it's such an incredible picture that is so clearly fulfilled by Jesus in this feeding of the 5,000. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the stray you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered, they wandered over all the mountains on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face. Of the earth with none to search or seek for them this is almost like a exact description of who Herod was and who these evil rulers of Israel in the time of Jesus were and how they were not caring for the sheep and here we see that just as in this passage the sheep are scattered over the mountains over the hills in the same way these sheep without a shepherd here on the shores of Galilee are on the hills and the mountains Scattered without a shepherd. But here the Lord promises to intervene. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As I live, declares the Lord God, surely because my sheep have become prey and my sheep have become food for all the wild beasts, since there was no shepherd, and because my shepherds have not searched for my sheep, but the shepherds have fed themselves and have not fed my sheep. Therefore, ye shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against the shepherds, and I will require my sheep at their hand, and put a stop to their feeding the sheep. No longer shall the shepherds feed themselves. I will rescue my sheep from their mouths, that they may not be food for them. For thus says the Lord God, Behold, I, I myself, will search for my sheep, and will seek them out. For the shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered. So I will seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered. Making it even more explicit in verse 23 and 24 he says, and I will set up over them one shepherd my servant David and he shall feed them You shall feed them and be their shepherd, and I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant David shall be a prince among them. I am the Lord. I have spoken. God says he himself will seek out these lost sheep. How does he seek them out? He seeks them out by sending his son to earth to take on human flesh. In the same way, um, in, as in verses 14 and 15, he speaks about bringing them onto the green grass, onto the slopes by the Sea of Galilee. We'll see later that here Jesus is feeding the flocks on the green grass on the slopes. And just as Jesus is the Son of David, he is the David that is spoken about here. In verses 23 and 24, the one that Jesus will send, or the one that God will send, excuse me, to rescue his sheep Jesus is the true Shepherd Jesus unlike Herod is a true king of his people of Israel so what can we take from that personally we're not um, first century Jews first century Israelites Um, we're not we were not fed personally physically by Jesus on this hillside What we can take from it is that we can have comfort when we are faced with evil leaders, when we are faced with leaders who do not love God, who do not love his people, who do wicked things, who command others to do wickedness. We can take comfort that God sees that, that God recognizes that wickedness and that he will ultimately bring them to account and that he is caring for his people. It's also a reminder to us not to put our trust in princes. If if that's not clear enough, from looking at our modern day political leaders, um, it's clear here uh, in scripture that we are not to put our trust or to look for current day political leaders as our kings and our shepherds, but that we are to look to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. Is our shepherd Jesus Christ? Is the one who has come to seek us out and to bring bring us to Himself. That brings us to our second point uh, in verses thirty-five through thirty-eight: the short-sighted disciples, short-sighted disciples. In this portion of um, this story of defeating the, the 5000 takes part in the middle of the first part of the mark of the book of mark in the way that most people divide it and, and this portion sort of from the beginning of the book to close to the end of chapter eight is constantly asking the question who is jesus who is jesus It starts with Mark's declaration in chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And it ends, near the end of chapter 8, with a blind man finally confessing Jesus as the son of David. And after a blind man, who's, who's encountered Jesus for the first time, confesses it, then the disciples finally start to recognize it. But in the middle of this section, everyone, including the disciples, constantly struggle to answer this question, who is Jesus? They've seen Jesus do so many miracles, so many incredible things uh, at this point. They've seen him cast out demons. They've seen him heal people. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They've seen him calm a storm. They've seen him drive out a whole legion of demons. They've seen him raise a girl from the dead. And the disciples themselves, under the commission of Jesus, have done incredible things. They've cast out demons. They've healed the sick by anointing them. Yet they still seem to completely misunderstand uh, the larger picture. They hear the demons saying to Jesus, you are the son of God. Yet they... Don't understand. They don't internalize it. They don't understand Jesus's, to our ears, simple parables, constantly having to ask Him to explain them, yet seemingly still not understanding. They don't understand how Jesus can calm the storm. He does it, and they ask, Who is this? Who could do this? And they don't uh, even consider in this situation that Jesus was capable of feeding this huge crowd that was before them. Instead, they see this impending this huge need and they immediately seek out a practical, natural solution. As you see in verse 35, where it says, and when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. They see that they recognize it was evening, sort of like this, maybe a little bit earlier in the day, depending on your interpretation. Um, They saw that there were thousands of people, 5,000 men plus women and children, Matthew says in his account, who had no food. No food at all. It's not even a matter of just having a little bit, not quite enough. There's no food. And they, they, the disciples themselves, they don't have any food. They're hungry. And Jesus, they look at Jesus, he doesn't have any food, does he? And then in verse um, 37, Jesus challenges them, challenges their assumptions, challenges their short-sightedness. He says, you give them something to eat. I think all of us can sort of imagine ourselves in the disciples' shoes at that moment. Just imagine, you're starving, you have nothing to eat. You see thousands of people with nothing to eat. You're in the middle of nowhere. It's getting late. Things are going to go very badly if something doesn't change soon. And here Jesus is telling you, telling me, You feed them. The disciples' reaction, even if it seems a little bit harsh to us, is probably pretty similar to how all of us would respond if we were in their shoes. But why would Jesus say this, say, you feed them? That's an allusion to 2 Kings 4, um, chapter 4, verses 42 through 44, I will make you turn there. but in this, in this passage, the prophet Elisha is there um, with over 100 men, sons of the prophets, and he tells his servant to take the 20 little tiny barley loaves that he has, and to feed these over 100 hungry men. And the servant reacts with the exact same sort of disbelief as the disciples. Yet Elisha, like Jesus, insists on going through with it and the same miracle of the multiplication of food and the satisfaction of people's hunger um, takes place. So here you see Jesus by saying this, he's identifying himself with the prophet Elisha, even though it seems his disciples completely fail to understand, showing that he is, in addition to being a true king, a true prophet. But the disciples, um, as you saw in verse 37 and 38, they still remain in a state of total disbelief. Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? 200 denarii is around eight months wages uh, for the people in Galilee. Um, and even then, in John's account, we see one disciple say, even that would not be enough. Now, Jesus and the disciples, they were poor. 200 denarii uh, was not something that they probably even had, even if they were to go into the villages. And it's doubtful that they would have even been able to find enough bread to feed all these people or to be able to carry it back with them. And, uh, we see them even in the response, they, they pretty much repeat Jesus' words exactly, saying, give it to them to eat. You can hear this just incredulous tone. It's like they can't believe what they heard. So they repeat it back to Jesus with the same words saying, surely you misspoke, surely you have some sort of different idea about what to do here. But Jesus Instead of rebuking the disciples, being angry and frustrated with them, he's patient with them. He'll rebuke them later, after they fail to understand the exact same miracle happening in the exact same way later in the book, but here he's still patient with them. He just asks them a question. How many loaves do you have? He condescends to them, giving them a lesser task than the feeding of the people, just saying, go and see. Go and see how much food you have. The disciples, they don't understand. They still are in disbelief. But they are, as uh, they do admirably, not, they don't keep arguing with Jesus. They go and they obey. him. They look. In John's account, we see that they uh, find a boy with some... with few five barley loaves and two little dried fish and they bring it to Jesus and they say, Here it is. This is what we have. One loaf for every thousand men. And this is not a German loaf, it's a little like circular flat piece of um, bread and two and one fish for every two thousand five hundred mm-hmm. men. Um, it was still Clearly, nowhere close to enough, probably even for the disciples and Jesus, much less such a gigantic crowd. The disciples still don't understand. In John, uh, in John's account, they after giving this bread and fish, they say, but what are they for so many? What are these for so many people? It's still a question. It still shows they don't understand, but it does show that rather than sort of confronting Jesus like they had before, now there's almost this this attitude of Jesus, what are you up to? What is going on here? This is still not enough, is it? Is it? So we see that the disciples here are short-sighted. What can we take away uh, from that passage? I think it's relatively clear, we can see ourselves like often in the gospels, very well in the disciples' shoes, we see that God must open eyes and soften hearts. No amount of witnessed miracles, no amount of human words, human wisdom, human ideas are enough to open eyes and soften hearts. Only an internal miracle not an external one that we witness, an internal miracle of the Holy Spirit can enable us to see and to understand the Gospel, to see and understand Jesus Christ. Secondly, we see that we need to obey God even when we don't understand. That's a thing that happens often nowadays where a new cultural norm comes out and we see that the culture... And maybe even our understanding, our instincts, comes against a biblical instruction, a biblical law. We don't understand why God would forbid us from this thing. We don't understand why God says that the church should be this way and not this way. But we see that from the disciples' example, even if we don't understand why God gives us these instructions, we need to obey. There are difficult decisions that we are called to make. We must obey, walking by faith, not by sight. And then we see that God is patient with his people. Over and over, the disciples totally misunderstand what Jesus is doing. They make mistakes, but over and over, Jesus patiently takes them by the hand and shows them and guides them. he does the same thing for us through his word through his holy spirit be encouraged you i we have a savior who loves us and who is patient with us brings us to our third and final point of meaningful miracle in verses 39 and 40 we see that that uh, Jesus commanded the disciples to cause the, the crowd to sit down in groups on the green grass. This might just seem like a little bit of pointless, um, a little bit of a like, pointless illustration, sort of like if you ever read Tolkien, um, Lord of the Rings or The Hobbit or something, and there's just adjective after adjective thrown in there. And some people like it. I like it, but some people are like, "What? What is the point of this?" Mark is not that way. Mark's gospel is written in such a succinct, uh, boom, 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 boom sort of way. There's like the catchphrase of his gospel is "Euthus." Immediately, he tells he tells a story in two or three verses, and then he says, "Immediately," and we transition to the next story. So, if we see something like this, Mark is trying to tell us something by by taking his time to mention that there was green grass. And what is he alluding to? He is alluding to the 23rd Psalm, which I'm sure all of you are very, very familiar with. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Jesus, the true shepherd, has led his people to green grass, to green pastures alongside the Sea of Galilee, a lake that's still pastures. We see Jesus here literally reenacting the 23rd Psalm towards his people. Jesus is our shepherd. In verses uh, 41 through 44, we see Jesus finally perform this miracle of the building up to this entire time. Let's read through the passage one time. And he says, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing and broke the loaves. And gave them his, his disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish and those who ate the loaves for 5,000 men. It's an incredible miracle, even just on the face of it. Clearly it shows us the power of God, His glory, His ability to provide for us. If you were to take any of those lessons away from this passage, they would be right lessons. Um, There would be no fault in interpreting that from this passage, but there's also much, more to it, much more underlying it. In the first place, um, we see, we see, I think we see um, here Jesus reenacting, fulfilling the the giving of manna to the people in the wilderness in Exodus. Jesus is being shown here as a new and a better Moses. He divides the crowds into hundreds and fifties, like Moses does in Exodus 18. And, but unlike Moses, making him a new and better Moses, he doesn't merely relay to people that God is going to be giving them bread through the manna on the ground, but he makes, he creates the bread, gives it to the people himself, gives it to them directly. Moses, in this case, is a type of Jesus Christ, who is the true lawgiver, the true shepherd, the true prophet uh, of his people. We also see that, unlike in the account in Exodus, the people are not grumbling after receiving um, this bread. Instead, they're satisfied. They're satisfied. In Deuteronomy 8:3, we see that um, it's not just I and commentators who see that there's deeper meaning to the manna in Exodus, but in Deuteronomy 8.3, God Himself explains the purpose. Deuteronomy 8.3, where He says, "'And He humbled you, and let you hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that He might make you know, that man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You see that in this passage before Jesus gives the people bread, what has he been doing? He's been teaching them. The people have been receiving the true, the spiritual bread from the mouth of the Lord and then they're eating the man of the physical bread that has been given to them. And that brings us to the other big picture here that Jesus is giving us. Um, the Apostle John makes that explicit um, in John chapter 6. You turn there with me. Uh, at the beginning of chapter 6, uh, Jesus speaks the 5,000. It's a very similar account to Mark. with some extra details. But after that, John introduces, basically interprets this passage for us. Um, The crowd follows Jesus, basically chasing him and and the disciples after he feeds them. And then Jesus confronts them in verses 26 and 27. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not labor for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. The crowd responds with, quite frankly, shocking ignorance after seeing. They saw a miracle. They were just 5,000 people fed by Jesus. And what do they say in verse 30? Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. It's, it's almost too uh, on the nose to read it. You really see there that these, the people are blind, that their hearts are hardened. After a long back and forth, Jesus really gets to the heart in verses 47 through 51, where he says, Yeah, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. My flesh. Jesus is the bread of life. Whoever feasts on him will never die, and is spiritually even now in this life. How do we feast on Him? Jesus says we feast on Him by faith. By our faith in Him and our union with Him. And the Lord's Supper, which we can see some, um, some similarities in the feeding of the 5,000, He lifts up the bread and tears it in half. The Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of that spiritual reality of our union with Christ, of our feasting on Him spiritually. In the same way the Lord's Supper is a sign and a seal of it, the feeding of the 5,000 was a sign. It was, yes, it was a mercy to the people, yes, it was compassion on the people and their physical needs, but Jesus is here showing, here saying that there is a deeper need deeper hunger the people have and they can't find it in the physical bread but only in the spiritual bread for Jesus Christ. What can we take from this? First we can take that there was plenty to eat. There was plenty to eat. There were 12 baskets full of leftovers. You can have the bread of life as well. There is bread that is left for you. All it takes is faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And you can feast on Him in the same way that believers all throughout the centuries have. If you don't know Christ, if you haven't yet eating of that spiritual bread. I encourage you to make that decision today. And for us who do believe, we should eat the bread that Jesus puts in front of us. We should read his word that he has given to us. Remember, the true life comes from the mouth of the living God. We should speak to him in prayer. Embracing that spiritual communion, that spiritual union we have with Him. We should take every advantage we have to hear Him preached, to hear His Word taught and explained. And we should take every opportunity we have and truly treasure it when we get to partake of His sacrament, to receive that sign and seal, that sign and seal of of feeding on Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for your goodness, your kindness, your graciousness to us. We thank you that you have not left us to our own devices as sheep without a shepherd, but that you have sent your son to be the true shepherd and to be the bread of life for us. That we might be fed, not just temporally, but also spiritually. That we might have union with him and that way be reconciled unto you. But we pray that you would help us to meditate on this, to let it be the guiding, uh, the guiding theme of our lives. That you would cause us to constantly set our eyes upon your Son, Jesus Christ. We pray these things in His name. Amen.